This is Failure to Stop's True Crime Tuesday. Tonight, a word of discretion, tonight's episode contains references to mass murder, to shootings, to all things macabre. It's going to be pretty awesome. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on this is Sunday. About the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Guns up and giddy up. Failure to Stop fans, this is True Crime Tuesday. Failure to Stop is the number one podcast and platform where we entertain and inform first responders such as yourself. Like I said, it's Tuesday. It's time for True Crime. Kendra Drama, our host, returns tonight to talk about another case which inspired a classic horror film. Tonight we're going to talk about the case that inspired the Amityville horror. Kendra, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, John? I am sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Both of us are a, a little, a little coffee, a little uh, sniffly tonight, and uh, those things are kind of annoying on a podcast. So we're going to do the best we can to restrain ourselves. Uh, but please, uh, you know, forbear with us as we try to make it through this difficult time. Uh, Halloween is a spooky time. Luckily, Kendra and I are both near death from sickness, so that kind of enhances the Halloween experience. Uh, before I get into it, just wanted to say what's going on this week on Failure to Stop. This Thursday, if you're in Pontra Vedra, Florida, make sure you make your way down to the Island Girl Cigar Bar. You can catch up with Ken Shamrock, Eric Tanzi, and all kinds of wonderful podcast folks. The ones over from Antihero Podcast and others are all going to be there. You're going to have a hangout. And then on Friday, the Valor Baranoka Boxing event will take place uh, there in Jacksonville. It's a huge event. If you uh, are still able to get tickets, you want to find your way down there or just hang out at the bar or whatever, uh, you can meet up with Eric Tanzi and all the rest from Fair to Stop and Antihero. And also uh, Elijah from uh, Grip Podcast will be there. Basically, everyone you love except me will be there. So that's going on this Thursday and Friday. Look forward to seeing you guys there. I say that in a very general sense because, like I said, I will not see you there. I will be here doing the <laughs> show. Uh, but you guys, uh, you go have fun in Florida. It's a unique chance to meet up with uh, some of your favorite podcast personalities i know eric is uh can't wait to meet you i know that uh he has uh he's doing some shuffling with the tickets so that he could sit with the wolf pack and i guess he's giving his ticket away and it's exactly the kind of thing that um he would never tell you about but he's doing nice things for the fans he wants to see you guys and, and meet up with you and all the first responders down there and get to know you guys it's a great great opportunity also next month in albemarle north carolina I know that he and Jay Darrell White are going to be headlining a special event for Veterans Day, November 11th in Albemarle, North Carolina. We're going to have more details on that as that is coming up here in the near future. That's on the other side of Halloween, though, so I'm not too worried about that right now. I'm just focusing on the spooky stuff. Kendra, speaking of spooky, how about a ghost bed? You're probably sleeping on some kind of regular like earthbound bed, probably made by like someone who wasn't evil or anything not to ghost bed is evil in fact there's some of the kindest people out there because they make a mattress and a mattress frame and all kinds of mattress and bed accoutrement they make them affordable they make the bigger better and softer and available for more people out there they support veterans they support first responders cops little dispatchers like me kendra this mattress is the only mattress that is made in the good old 
USA. 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 <laughs> That's right. It's made right here in America. And uh, they their mattresses are so affordable and they have financing for you. You can get 0% down, 0% financing, even if you have basic white girl true crime credit. Uh, their ghost bed guarantee is that you could try it out for 101 nights. And if you don't like it, you could bring it back. And there's no hard feelings. They can make that promise to you because they know it's just simply not going to happen. Once you lay down on a ghost bed, you're getting a good night's sleep. That whole mattress, no matter how you move throughout the night, it feels like when you flip the pillow over and it's the cool side of the pillow, that's how comfortable you could be in a ghost bed. This time of year, it's actually fairly dangerous because as temperatures are dropping, you're cool in the bed. It's going to keep your body temperature low. You can get sleep so good, it's scary. To cheer you up in the morning, why don't you have a nice breakfast smoothie? Not to be confused with the shake, which by definition of, must have milk in it. Factor Meals will bring you food. They'll deliver it right to your door. You're going to drop off fresh chef-prepared meals. You can choose from their online menu, over 300 choices. You can get meals that are going to cater to any diet. These are fresh meals that are going to be sent to you. Refrigerated, not frozen. This is not some kind of friggin' lean cuisine frozen meal or something. We're sending you good quality. Uh, High-value food is going to be delivered right to your door. If you uh, take into consideration the high cost of gasoline, the high value of your time, binomics, the way every time you go to a grocery store, every single person in there completely disposes of the facade of civilized society and acts like a sociopath and stands in front of you and doesn't let you get a chub of hamburger and they just sit there and they hit you with the cart and they don't apologize because they say, well, you're too big. It's your fault. You're automatically in the wrong because you're six and a half feet tall. Anyway, if you get sick of all the grocery store bullshit, <laughs> just have a meal brought to your house. Like a gift to yourself in the future from your past self. Be considerate to the future of you. That person's got a stressful job. He's a first responder or whatever. Get Factor Meals. Go to uh, factormeals.com. Use our offer code, which is Wolfpack50. And get you a great deal to start uh, ordering Factor Meals. We appreciate them because they support the podcast. And Officer Privacy. Right now is a spooky enough time. Look at the state of things. Like you want to like scare yourself. You don't need to watch Amityville Horror. Just turn on the news. That's been that way since 2020, at least, or possibly before, especially if you're a police officer. Because if you know, if you go out there and do your duty, you uphold the Constitution, you uphold the law, try to protect somebody. You do a job that nobody but people inside the profession can understand. You know that you're going to be putting yourself and your future, your pension, family's future, your security, you're putting it all on the line every time you go out and defend your community. You're only eight or 12 hours away from winding up on CNN or something else. It's a scary time. Make sure you're protecting yourself. Go to officerprivacy.com forward slash Wolfpack. They have a whole suite of tools that you can use to uh, protect yourself from information brokers who are going to go out there and sell your information to whoever wants to buy it. It's a good way to protect yourself. It's just like another form of insurance. Don't think that just scrambling the letters on your Facebook name or go by going by your first and middle name is going to be enough to protect you. Frankly, you and your family all deserve better. Your admin's not going to protect you. Protect yourself. Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Between ghost bed, factor meals, and officer safety, officerprivacy.com, we're working on your peace of mind, your security as a police officer, your mental health, and your well-being. Go ahead and get all three of those. Watch your life improve massively. Kendra. I love murders from from the seventies. I think that was the best best decade for murder. A lot of people like nineties uh, murders. I know that Ashley Tansy like she loves nineties murders the best. 
I think they were best in the seventies because everyone was just coming off of the um the true shit show that was Vietnam. Like everyone uh, was doing drugs. They were doing hard, hard drugs because they weren't uh they weren't fully understood. They were kind of part of the counterculture. Everybody was dropping acid. Everyone was doing heroin, even little kids in the streets. Uh, I don't know yeah. if it was that bad, but but uh, there were the seventies were like a, a weird hangover of the sixties, and the sixties were definitely a weird time. Sixties was also a, a weird time for uh, serial murders, mass murders, all kinds of weird shit going on. And uh, this case is no different, and uh, it sort of reached a, a legendary status because of the movie that came out from it. Isn't that right? Yes, the the actual uh, murders aren't really talked about a whole lot, which is shocking because it's pretty uh, gruesome. But most of the time when you think about Amityville, you think about the movie, which isn't based necessarily on the actual murders. It's based on the family that moves in afterwards, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode. But the actual murders are much more scary, and I'm not really sure why. Um, you said that you'd heard this story before. Obviously, I think most people have probably heard this story. And you've listened to a couple of podcasts before, so have I. And they do cover the the family that moves in, the Lutz family that moves in after the actual murders more than the actual crime. Even when I was researching this, I had to dig a little deeper. Every article ended with the Lutz family and all that big mess that went on. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure why that is. Let's circle back to the family that, that died there. That's the DeFeo family. And yes. one point that's interesting that you'll hear in a lot of other podcasts, but I guess the Lutz family that moved in afterwards, it seemed to be a malevolent presence in the house. Um, the movie certainly depicts it as the house itself is uh, the manifestation or uh, some kind of evil presence. It's where the evil is. Uh, it's where the presence is located and they're almost inside of it. Mm -hmm. The house has a proprietariness about it. You know, it's telling the family to get out. But the DeFeo family, uh, all but one member of the DeFeo family were killed in this house. And as strictly as a true crime case, it's fairly interesting. I will tell you that our podcast is different than other podcasts. If you're listening to this because you're interested in the DeFeo family murder, Kendra is a former police officer. I'm a 911 dispatcher. I also worked in the state penitentiary for many years. I have been around many people who have killed others. I have uh, I have known serial killers. Um, I know what they're like. And I, I know that the mysticism that these podcasts tries to imply, like they have cold eyes and um, the room grows cold whenever they walk in. There's always people saying, oh, this person was so chilling. It was absolutely chilling. They're also doing like bad xylophone music that's always like in a minor key <laughs> and like really like whenever like there's action, there's like somebody's hitting a violin with their fist and um, they're just constantly are misusing terms like uh, they'll say, uh, you know, and um, all six of the DeFeos were killed in cold blood. It was a crime of passion. I'm like, wait a second. Crime of passion is hot blood. Cold blood means like they were just blown away for no reason. Those are two totally different things, particularly in a legal sense. Like if someone's killed in cold blood, like that person's responsible. Crime of passion is like a little bit more of diminished capacity type thing, like um, with battered women and things like that. That's almost kind of a defense is saying, you know, I was so angry that I, I didn't know what I was doing in the moment. That's diminished capacity. That's hot blooded. Cold blooded means, you know, and so that obviously has a huge bearing in sentence. 
The other thing I really couldn't stand listening to these other podcasts is how often they couch things. It's like, so this this case is so unique in that Satan is blamed as the primary motive for the camp for the killing of the family. Could also be the mob, you know. So Satan could be the mob. <laughs> could, could be a lot of things, but they they're always saying allegedly, allegedly Satan told Ron DeFeo Jr. to kill. Like it's a like possibility. It, yeah. Well, they also they also clearly don't want to be sued by Satan. And like, you know, none of us would really want that, I guess, you know, sitting in court with Satan. That's like me divorcing you all over again. It was truly terrible. But <laughs> uh, Wow. Well, I'm just just kidding. I cried the whole me, time. You just called me because you were sitting in court with Satan. That's why you were crying. No, it was our terrible lawyer that like represented Whisked both me away. Of us. He wished, wished you away. Uh, <laughs> winked at me a lot. That wasn't fun. Uh, why wasn't he at least sitting in the middle? He sat on your side and there was, he kept saying my clients and then he would say the worst things about me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but they're constantly saying allegedly, right? So that kind of takes me out of it because it's like, well, they don't know anything. The other thing that would drive me nuts about these podcasts is so the case reached legendary status, right? Part of that is because of the way the, the, the family was murdered the way you have the one son that survived and then this movie that came out afterwards the talk about the mob connections i think the case became so much bigger after it was over like there was a greatness to this case this murder that happened in the small town that everyone wanted to be associated with it so everybody has their opinion on it uh it's kind of like one of those things where it's like everyone like a big event will happen and everyone will say oh i was there when that happened or i saw this and everyone knew that uh, the DeFeo family didn't get along. Everyone knew there was abuse and everyone knew there was mob connections and everyone knew that they were having black masses in which they prayed to the devil. It's like, you know, what did you guys all know at the time? Because, you know, right. Not a lot of this was being documented. Uh, and we'll get into some of that. And it's just, it's very hard to tell what is true and what is false and what's complete bullshit about this case. <clears throat> Because everybody wants to chime in and have something interesting to say so that they can have a soundbite or a moment. Like I said, the association with greatness. But why don't you take us uh, to the very beginning? It's a very good place to start. <laughs> and uh, the night of uh, November 13th, 1974 in uh, Amityville, Long Island, New York. Um, Amity, you know, it's also the name of the town in uh, Jaws. <laughs> and uh, it's Latin for happy. So. Huh. Because of the movie, Amityville sounds like a like a terrifying place, but it really just means happy town. That's all that means. <clears throat> so Amityville is actually also a somewhat affluent area. It was at the time. I'm not sure now. Um, and this house is on Ocean Avenue, which kind of made me laugh because of that yellow is it a yellow card song. Oh, God, they're going to come for me in the comments. When it's like, there's a place off Ocean Avenue. That one. And I sang that song to myself the entire time I was researching this. So that was interesting. Um, (laughs) But this is in Long Island, New York. As you said, the actual murders happened on November 13th, 94, excuse me, 74, by Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., who was 23 years old at the time. Ronald Jr. lived in the home with his father, Ronald Sr., mother, Luis, and four younger siblings, Don, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew. The oldest was Don, who was 18, and the youngest was John Matthew, who was nine. 
the family life, according to Ronald, because like you said, the entire family was obliterated, so there's no one really here to say otherwise. According to Ron Jr., he was abused by Ron Sr., of course. And I guess he grew up, this was a notable detail because I saw it multiple times, he grew up overweight and was bullied a lot for that. When he went to middle school, middle into high school, he started using amphetamines and alcohol to self-medicate because of all this horrible abuse and bullying that he endured from his father and his peers. He maintained that habit until he was ultimately arrested. So by the time the murders happened, he probably had about 10 years of substance abuse under his belt. He resented his father a lot, not only for the abuse, but also because... He was kind of a phony. In a way, he was a used car salesman. Nothing wrong you, with that, but... You're talking about uh, Ron Sr., his dad? Ron uh, Sr., correct. Yeah, so I you, guess I guess the family, uh, the money really came from his wife's side, his uh, father-in-law. They have this yes. nice uh, Dutch colonial house, which I actually have pictures of things. I should probably uh, put those on the screen, but everything that was uh, nice about the house... And about the family and the pool and the boat dock and all this, I guess uh, Ron Sr. really owed that to his father-in-law. So there's kind of a, a lot of podcasts talk about this, the psychology of, you know, being a phony, like you mentioned, owing everything to someone else, kind of trying to keep up a facade that, you know, you're a big deal. Uh, he worked at the Buick dealership, I guess, for his father-in-law, but uh was it ron jr that jr that worked at the buick dealership maybe ron jr worked was, there okay that was the family yeah family it business was like a family thing. yeah and um so he he has to uh sort of keep it up in the family that you know he's a big man you know that he's really the provider and things like that i don't get into a lot of the pop psychology but i will tell you that at one point one of these commentators was like ron senior really felt like he was in charge of things well I hate to like tell you this, but like back in like 1974, like the father was seen as the head of the household and the father, the husband was sort of uh, the, the leadership for the marriage as well. I don't think that that was out of the norm for a family. I don't think it's really even out of the norm necessarily today, but I guess he had self-image issues. He was rough on the kids. He was rough on his wife. Um, and a lot <clears throat> of that played in his treatment of Ron Jr. Go ahead. Yes, I was just going to say that his uh, struggle that he probably had with his identity as a man having to owe his his home and basically his lifestyle to his father-in-law probably really weighed on him. And I'm sure if he was truly an abusive individual, there's I couldn't find anything to corroborate that, but it would make sense if he was. Um, he probably would fight with his wife about it a lot. I would imagine that was probably very difficult for him to feel, you know, respected as the man of the house and maybe even difficult for his wife to respect him as man of the house as well. I mean, I don't know, kind of getting off in the weeds here, but yeah, but that whatever was going on caused a lot of turmoil within the family, mostly between Ron Jr. and his parents. Um. When he graduates high school, he goes and works, like you said, at the dealership with his dad. But he's never there. He's 
off doing whatever with his friends, getting drunk, getting high. When he is there, he leaves early. You know, he's just kind of a crappy, like, hang-around type of person. He's not going to college. The fighting is getting worse and worse, and it all comes to a head the early morning of November 13th, 1974, when Ronald Jr. shoots his father while his father is sleeping in his bed. He shoots him with a 35 caliber, uh, let me see... Was it a? It's a rifle. I have it right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a thirty-five caliber Marlin. Uh, Marlin, right? Yes. He shoots him in the back. He shoots him twice, fatally wounding him. When he's done with his dad, he turns the gun on his mother, and shoots and kills her. He shoots her twice as well. Again, she is found. Both of them are found face down in their beds. So it was apparent they were sleeping when this happened. Ron then, in a frenzy, I suppose, this is where the spiritual stuff comes into play in a minute. He takes to the rest of his siblings who are all sleeping in their beds. And again, the oldest one is 18 and the youngest one is nine years old. He goes in one by one and shoots them fatally again while they're all sleeping in their beds. Um, Ron later states that about the shootings. He says, once I started, I couldn't stop. Yeah. Which to me tells me that he's probably, you know, this resentment has been building for a long time, his entire life, if what he's saying is accurate, I'm sure. And he probably thought about doing this for a really, really long time. And when he finally got the balls to do it, it probably just mixed with alcohol and, and drugs, I'm sure. He just kept going with his like adrenaline rush that he had, or he, like you said, a crime of passion where in the heat of the moment, he probably only meant to kill his father. And then his mother woke up and just, he just kept going. Like he said, once he started, he couldn't stop. So that's where the, about, go ahead. Can, can we, t can we talk about the, the, with the bodies and the gun? Sure. Some of the other details, because this is why some people think that this case is very, very unusual. So he's killing a lot of people with a rifle, which we all know is going to be very loud. I could see him taking out dad first, particularly if that's where the seat of all his resentment is. Mom's right there. Both of them sleep on their stomach. See, that's the part that gets me. And not only that, but every member of the house that he killed were all on their stomach. They were all face down which is somewhat erroneously referred to as execution style. But, I, you know, shooting someone in the back of the head um, is, you know, broadly speaking, sort of execution style. But there's something strange about it that every single member of the household was found sleeping face down. Now, that is like a trait that can be passed on. You know, if mom and dad are both stomach sleepers, I could see all kids, all the kids doing that. But so, like, walk yourself through it. Be Ron Jr. in the scenario. Pops is sleeping, face down, you blow him away. Uh, I guess uh, mom wakes up, you know, but she doesn't turn around or flinch or get up, move at all, apparently, or get out of the bed. She's still face down. And maybe, the, you know, it scared her awake, but she, like, her muscles locked up and she went deer in the headlights and took the shot to the back of the head. And then he's still got to go to these other rooms, multiple other rooms, and find his siblings. And with each of them, uh, 
you know, shoot them in the back of the head. So did they wake up? Did they turn around? Were some of them sleeping up? What I'm saying, uh, why this would be important is he's trying to claim that once he started, he just couldn't stop. He went full family annihilator, which is a phenomenon. On the other hand, if he goes into a room and finds a sibling face up or sitting up in bed or standing and he's talking to them, and I guess, you know, maybe there's some kind of dissociation going on, but if he's ordering them to get back in bed, to turn away from him, lay down, and then he blows them away, I mean, that, that adds uh, a lot of uh, forethought to the murders that make it seem like it wasn't just a runaway frenzy, that it was a little bit more planned, it was a little bit more calculated, it was a little yeah. bit more premeditated, which, you know, I don't believe, I don't believe there was... Uh, death penalty in new york at this time um, maybe it was but it would have been vacated anyway by the 70 supreme court decision i know one of the jurors said that um actually when she said this it really pissed me off because she's like i'm grateful that it wasn't a death penalty case because uh i would i wouldn't have done it i wouldn't have sat on that maybe uh the fed maybe at that time the federal federal cases were still had the death penalty and it just made me mad. I'm like, well, when you're a juror, it doesn't have anything to do with your feelings, how you feel about the death penalty. Your job is to apply the law. So I guess if you can't apply the law, you should just raise, raise your hand during jury selection and say, you know, I can't do this. I'm going to get on out of there. Maybe that's what she's saying. But I don't like the idea that she's uh, willing to nullify her decision uh, based on the kind of punishment that the guy's going to get out of it. it kind of bugs me. It's not a good juror. We try to weed those people out. <laughs> Yeah, especially in a case like that where there's children involved. And I don't really know. Um, I did see that you, the question you were asking earlier, how is it that every single member, member of this family was face down in the bed? Why was there no struggle? Why did nobody hear anything? Because neighbors didn't hear anything either. There were a couple of things that I saw that kind of piqued my interest on it. One of them was that Ron said, Ron Jr., later said that he drugged the family at dinner the night before. And he, that was the explanation that he tried to use as to why they were all face down. One thing that gets me about that, I kind of, I kind of believe that it was more along the lines of what you were saying, where he was using the gun to tell them what to do. These, this family, it's a, it's a family. So they're not expecting one of them to, annihilate them all in the middle of the night, even if there are some issues and some turmoil, some fighting. I'm sure Louise was woken up by the gunfire when her husband was murdered. And I'm sure that she probably waking up and, and seeing, first of all, that your husband's been shot and then looking over and realizing your son is the one that just killed him has got to be not only uh, terrifying, but shocking and there's a moment of, is this even real? Am I dreaming? She just woke up. Yeah. So the struggle side of it, like, I see why they wouldn't have. Another thing, one other thing that gets me um, real quick, the gun that he used holds five rounds. He shot uh, Ron Sr. and Mar Marilyn. What the heck? <laughs> that was from last week. Ron Sr. and Louise twice and each of the four remaining children once so he fired eight rounds that we know of he would have at least had to change out the cartridge one time mm -hmm. which means he would have had to have it on him loaded ready like this i don't believe that this was a crime of passion oh well i just couldn't stop because if that's true i would think that 
once the initial cartridge is empty, you would probably realize, oh shit, okay, the gun's empty. What did I just, it gives you a moment of pause to realize what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the children are young. They're nine, let's see, they're nine, 13, 12, and 18. Their older brother's telling them to do something. Mm-hmm. They're horrified. They're going to do it. So yeah. those are the explanations that were given. And those are the things that I saw. That makes the most sense to me what you're saying, where he just kind of made them do what he wanted them to do. Yeah. It could have been that uh, they didn't realize it was him either, particularly the kids. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm asleep and a loud noise wakes me up, I kind of wake and then I'm then I, I'm, I'm listening. I'm like, what was that mm-hmm. sound? Like, was it just something falling over outside? Is there an intruder in the house? Different people yeah. are going to respond to that differently. You know, somebody like Eric Tanzi obviously going to is going to jump up. He's completely <laughs> naked. He's got a handgun taped to his chest at all times. You know, he's ready to go. <laughs> somebody like me, I'm going to I'm going to be like, you know, a little bit. I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm going to see what the sound is. Of course, by the time you're hearing multiple shots firing, you're I think you took about you know, uh, father, uh, mother, and then the sisters. And oh then yeah. It's possible, I think so you know, the, the kid, the kids see him coming in and, and they, they just see a shape, a, a man, this is at three 30 in the morning saying, you know, turn over, turn away or whatever. And he fires away. You're right though, that with the capacity, he's got to reload. That's got to be a huge point of contention for the prosecutor and for the defense, because at that point, are you aware of what you're doing? Well, you must be because you have the wherewithal to reload your, your rifle. You know, that's a huge part of it. The other thing is, is that the family dog was tied up outside. This dog is normally in the house. I know that Ron Sr. was pretty close to the dog. Ron Jr. did not like the dog, and they kind of bickered over it. The podcasts like to make a big part of this. They like to make a big thing out of this. Like, uh, Ron Jr. doesn't like the dog. So he tells Pops, yeah, I, don't like your, I don't like your mutt. And Ron Sr. will be like, well, whatever you do to him is going to happen to you, which I just take as like a, you know, they're just kind of arguing about the dog. And they like try to make it out to think that, you know, Ron Sr. was seriously concerned about his son maiming an animal and all this. And they kind of try to take they take any small detail and they sensationalize it and criminalize it. And they see it through this lens of like the most egregious psychopathic killer of all time. And all of a sudden, everything, every aspect of their lives is an artifact of madness. It's something that was that was almost like a, a trail post saying look at what's going to happen look, look what's flying ahead you're all you're all going to get killed because of mm-hmm. his attitude towards the dog or that he was using speed in high school to lose weight or that uh, he had issues with uh, being bullied by his uh, his father or whatever else was going on it, it was so obnoxious to listen to the episode and it's just like <laughs> that doesn't mean anything and uh people people in the neighborhood saying that the defaults <laughs> didn't get along it's all hearsay you know yeah um, I saw the opposite. I saw people saying they were nice and normal and they never knew there was issues. I so, saw that too. And, and and see, but they actually, they put both of those in the podcast because both of those is sensational because the yes. murders themselves are more sensational. If this was a normal, well-adjusted family, how did it come to this? The implication spooky wise could be no matter how safe and normal your family is, you're all going to get shot in the back of the head in the middle of the night, which give you that chill factor. And also like I implied before, like, you know, if there's if there's trouble brewing in the family, you know, uh, family's not getting along, family's threatening each other, uh, you know, you know, then it, then, it, then it gets that ominous, you know, everything's important. We're on a course for disaster thing. So they literally yeah, it, play it both ways on these podcasts. And it's just uh, 
it, it's like uh do you do you not remember what you said to five minutes ago or in the last episode so maybe i just listened to some especially bad podcasts but it was it was a groan fest to be honest with you well they want to i think some of the motivation behind doing that where they're sensationalizing it is one for views they want to be the one to tell the story the best possible way and come up with the answer no one thought about but I think they also just want an answer for why, because it is weird. It's not weird to you and me or to no, probably anybody totally listening. Normal. I mean, this, this guy clearly is just kind of like he's being fueled by substances. He might, he might have some sort of other mental issue that's coming into play here. It could be, he's just, he just broke or he's just evil or, because this, oh, I think, is that in there. He's just fucking evil. <laughs> we should have a. Well, I don't want you to get that. mad just at me again, John. Evil. No, I, I forgave you for that. There's so little, <laughs> so much that I forgive you for. I, I, when I, when I watch this case, they want to report that you know he was definitely possessed by the devil, that he was a victim as well. To me, as someone who's had experience taking calls from domestic violence, someone, someone who's known people in prison, to me, this looks like a case of the ultimate domestic violence. Um, family members killing each other is not unusual, unfortunately. You know, like if it takes real animosity to blow a little kid away, like it takes a lot for you to get that way. And so, how do you get that level of animosity? It's by being locked in with a relationship with the family. Like, you know, it, it'd be a whole other different psychology, it'd be a whole other different thing if this guy just and actually, we see that now where people go out and just do mass murders, shopping malls, and things like that. But mm-hmm. You know, when you when you're when you're a family annihilator, when you've got domestic violence issues and, you know, sometimes in cases like these, they think that they're protecting the kids from uh, a, uh, a bad life or a sad life. There was actually a, a family annihilator in my jurisdiction where he left a note saying he was going to kill himself and his wife and his kids because he didn't want his kids to have to grow up without their parents. <laughs> so, like, they, they don't realize, you know, how ironic that is, but. Uh, sometimes parents will kill their kids because they don't want them to go through through pain. Yeah. So I don't know if that's the case in this one, but I just well, the point is that there's so many different pathologies and it, and it comes from so many different cases that to me it doesn't seem all that unusual. And podcasts and movies try to make so much out of it, Kendra. Yeah, I think um, I don't think that any of those explanations really apply to Ron. Again, I don't know. I'm speculating just like the other ones are. The other podcasts are, but I will say that I had a similar incident with somebody where I had to Baker act him because he, he was uh, a Baker act as an involuntary custody for mental health, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Um, he believed that his father, he, he told us that Jesus told him that his father was a, was the antichrist and was going to rape his sister who was like nine or 10 at the time. This kid was probably 19, living, he was still at home, you know, 19. And he truly, genuinely believed that he had to kill his father, that God was telling him to kill his father. That's somebody who has something going on. I think he was schizophrenic. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But in this case, I don't think that it's quite as... Um, that would be a sensational thing, I think, because it's a mental, it's a mental defect or a condition with somebody who 
didn't have domestic violence in their life and they just have these delusions. But with Ron, I think Ron Jr., I think this is more of a he probably has a lot of the domestic violence stuff mixed in with the drugs and alcohol and a bunch of other stuff. So it's very interesting. And I do agree that a lot of podcasts sensationalize it and it's annoying. They sensationalize everything. But the fact of the matter is human beings are not that sensational. Like the reality of it is not that amazing. (laughs) It just is. It's a family murder. Not what's, to make light of ama- it, but no, but I mean, uh, it's straight. It's family. It's straightforward. But the legend, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, if the legend's more interesting than the facts, you print the legend. And I think this is right. definitely one of those cases that does that because now all of a sudden you have this family, whether they're normal or whether they're troubled. Now they all have their different little things. For example, here's a story about Lee, about uh, Ron Senior. Ron Sr., who we uh, have implied has uh, self-image issues. His money comes from the, uh, his father-in-law. Um, he also uh, works at this uh, Buick dealership in Brooklyn and uh, ties to the mafia, which I alluded to before. He's not a made man. He's not a member of the mafia, but he's someone that does work for them, whatever that means. I don't know if he's a messenger or whatever. It doesn't even necessarily mean that he's like a hitman or whatever. Um, but there was, uh, some evidence that, uh, a large sum of money was missing from the Buick dealership, uh, something like $200,000, which particularly in 1974 was a lot of money. It's a lot of money today. That money goes missing. Well, is that money owed to the mafia? Does the mafia actually run the Buick dealership? Where did the money go? Um, the thing is, is though, if you owe the mafia a lot of money, uh, and they want it back. They're not going to get it from you if you're dead. So that's like poor debt management. And then uh, the mafia, you know, you can look into this yourself, but like the mafia almost has a code. That's what makes them so interesting for movies and things like this. So there's things that they will do and there's things they won't do. And sometimes the movie, the mafia movie is about them breaking their own codes, right? Uh, You know, they'll go to war on each other and do things that, you know, is against the Sicilian mafia code. One thing the mafia typically will not do is sanction a hit against uh, children, you know, uh, little kids. Uh, Like I said, you're not going to get your money back blowing a guy away. If you just want to send him a message like don't mess with the mafia, killing him and his whole family, it doesn't send a message to anyone, particularly when now this case is so sensational that like the mafia involvement's really, uh, you know, just a theory. Like no one thinks like, well, this is for sure the mafia. You don't fuck with the mafia. You know, when uh, Colombia and uh, Mexico and all these other countries that have serious drug cartels send a message, it's very obvious that it's them. And I think if the mafia wanted to send a a typical message, you know, they would do it in a way in which it would leave no doubt it was the mafia. And here we have serious doubts. Um, Another sensational story, you could almost call it apocrypha, come out after Ron is tried and convicted it's one of the longest trials in suffolk county history in new york and he's sentenced to 25 years uh consecutively for each murder so he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life but um he kind of changes his story throughout the years to see if he can get his sentence reduced in my opinion because at one point the story changes to oh well i did it and um you know i couldn't i couldn't help i couldn't stop myself to 
I found Don, my sister, killing everyone, and I just killed Don out of the rage of seeing her having killed my family. Which, if he only kills one person, then I guess he's only guilty of killing one, and he gets out of he can be eligible for parole in just twenty five years, which is a much better deal. Um, did you hear other details like that about other theories that he's presented? I mean, well, he, he does he he does present a lot of yeah he he does change his story a couple of times throughout like his post conviction while he's serving time, but prior to being arrested, he made the statement: "Once I started, I couldn't stop." And this is fresh after the, the incident. Um, he also said he told law enforcement that he packed up uh, the gun and some bloody clothes and the empty cartridges in a pillowcase and dumped it in a storm drain, which they found. So his information was accurate. He does go to work after he murders them. He takes a shower. He goes to work. He sees his friends. He Make sure to tell everybody, I haven't heard from my family in a while. Although that's really strange. He comes home, finds them dead, runs to a bar, nearby bar, and tells every and asks for help. And everybody comes. Law enforcement gets there. This is when he tells them he believes that it's a mob hit. When the law enforcement initially shows up and they take him to the station for his own protection because they're like, mm -hmm. okay, well, I can't leave this guy here. Right. And they start to poke holes in it because they realize this hitman that he's blaming for this is actually not even in the state. They also kind of find his behavior a little suspicious because my, he's my, he's probably out of his mind right now. And eventually, inevitably, the next day he confesses to doing it. He says, "I yeah, I killed them all." These are all things he said within twenty four hours of the actual murders. He confesses to it, all these things. He goes to court. The trial happens in October of the following year where his defense attorney tries to say that he was acting in self-defense against the voices in his head that were telling him to hurt his family, which back then that sensationalized the case at the time because that was not something that people really did or said. This was, it's not, I don't believe it's the first one but it's one of the earlier cases that try to bring in this demonic or even like insanity type of defense. It did not work. Nobody bought it. <laughs> and he was sentenced to prison on six counts of, of murder. Again, later he was giving these stories trying to, I think, I believe, like you said, lessen his sentence or get a, a retry or something like that. Um, the story he gave about Don and his mother, he also implicated his mother in the murders. He said, from what I, from what I read, he, I think he gave a couple of different accounts, to be honest with you. One of the ones that pissed me off the most was him saying that it was Don's idea yeah, and that she, she wanted her father dead. So she and, killed and her the mom dad. too she she's and she wanted her mom dead too because i guess she was she was brainwashed by the father or she was mad that that i guess dad beat up all the kids and mom just stood idly by during that so she thought that mom needed to go too go ahead yeah that's that's one and then the other one that he said was that don killed their father and then luis got pissed off or was 
distraught is the word that was used over that and decided to kill her four children. And Ron Jr. just had to swoop in and save the day. So he killed her because she just killed his siblings. And then he also says, which I think is more damning than anything. He says, no, I wasn't insane. I never asked my, I never asked my attorney to use that defense. I was not hearing voices. I'm not possessed by the devil. People think I am. I guess I'm, he says, I guess I'm the Amity horror. So you're saying that you weren't insane. And after it happened, you said that you did it. So to me, it's like, well, you've, you've obviously did it. And why would, if you're the, the, the excuse of, well, my family, other family members killed them. Why are they all lying face down with one single methodical shot in each of their backs? It doesn't make his stories don't make any sense at all. He's very all over the place. He's he's always constantly trying to change it to be favorable, but he can never he can never say, well, it actually happened this way without condemning himself in another fashion. It's like he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too, but he's fat no matter what. It's pretty much what yeah. happens to him when he tries to explain how it goes one thing that's interesting and i guess i have a if you don't mind me asking a police officer no, question please. of you because you mentioned that uh he said something about drugging the families uh dinner the night before and that's why they were all uh asleep or um they weren't being woken up by the sounds of the gunfire there was a medical exam that said that they their talk screens were negative for any kind of sedatives or anything that would have knocked them out um but as a police officer um, if you're taking this guy into custody and I guess a lot of it's going to be based on your interview, which you don't have a lot of details from the interview. In fact, that's something else podcasts try to make a big deal out of, you know, the cops in the seventies are automatically corrupt. So detectives are beating him. And that's why he has marks when he goes in for his arraignment, he had a face, uh, uh, some sort of mark on his face. I think it's more likely that he had a fight with his parents the night before of some kind. I don't think he was, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think his father, you know, might have pushed him or punched him or something and pushed him over the edge. Um, would you uh, try to get consent for a blood draw to, to see if he had any kind of drugs in his system? Would you at least ask him to consent for that? And if he didn't, would you try to get a warrant or what would you try to do? Or would you try to do none of that? And uh, I'm just really showing my cards as a dispatcher who's never arrested anyone. I don't think from from my perspective as someone who wasn't a detective... I don't think there's really a point in doing that. He has a history of alcohol and drug abuse. It doesn't really uh, provide any sort of intent. Some people will argue that nowadays, I, I've heard this from people that work at agencies around here and it absolutely blows my fucking mind. But if someone commits a, a violent crime and they're high and they don't know what they're doing, or they're drunk and they don't know what they're doing. They argue, what's the intent? If they were of sound mind, they might not have done this. Well, you intentionally took drugs. You intentionally drank alcohol, both of which you know what's going to happen and what it's going to do to your judgment. And to me, um, unless you have some sort of diminished uh, mental state that's caused by an intellectual defect and you actually don't know what you're doing, you have full control over your faculties and what happens to them when you introduce drug and, drugs and alcohol into that and change it. That's intent to me. So the only reason why I think somebody would do a blood draw 
on him is to maybe try to come up with some reason for intent, but it doesn't really matter if he was high or drunk, in my opinion. So I would not be asking for one. And I don't, in my experience, I don't think other than a DUI, I don't think we do that, yeah. but I was not a homicide investigator, so I'm not really sure. I just think but it's that, a, that's, interesting you know. because at one point he, he has said, you know, that he was uh, often using drugs at the time. And uh, to me, I guess it would be interesting as an investigator, maybe, maybe wouldn't have any actual, you know, probative value or any legal durable value, but just sort of interesting to me. And I guess, you know, <laughs> being interested isn't uh, enough cause to actually obtain blood <laughs> from somebody, but uh, it would be interesting that if he said, you know, well, you know, I was completely high. I was on heroin and alcohol. I, was, I drank a whole thing of scotch. But you had a blood test on him that said that he, you know, was stone cold sober. Uh, you know, that that would be something that you could use to help uh, convict him or at least take away that diminished capacity defense. You know, the fact that he didn't have anything in his system at the time would be interesting. But uh, yeah, that's, I'm just trying to put out something procedural in there that other podcasts probably don't think to cover or. Well, it's a good question because there are some cases where I'm sure they do do that. I don't think that it's standard for every case like this though but if he's saying that he's not high he's not whatever then yeah i i guess because part of a homicide investigation at least the ones that i've been a part of they do like a full exam you know they take all of their you know they take all their clothes they do a they have like ems come look at their bodies <laughs> like, like they do an yeah. exam i know obviously Maybe at the jail they might do something. I don't know on that end if they like if the nurses do things like that. Because getting somebody to comply with a blood draw when they don't want to, I don't. Uh, I've seen yeah, the way you do it. You punched you punched a guy right in the face, and then you held a little sample cup under his nose, and you're saying you turn to the nurse, you're like, "I got it. You got out of there, right?" Yeah, that's exactly what happened. The guy that broke his neck in his DUI crash that didn't want it, I just punched him in the face. <laughs> remember that story <laughs> nobody yeah, listening sorry. is going to know what i'm talking about <laughs> no. sorry um <laughs> more more apocryphal stories about the family this one i thought was very bizarre and this is why i don't put any stock in this one at all i guess uh ron senior you talk about uh, the possibility of schizophrenia we know that that sort of thing tends to run in the family Mm -hmm. I guess at one point, uh, Ron, who uh, I guess his son thought was the Antichrist, Ron Sr., uh, thought that he was receiving apocalyptic visions of the future. That, uh, And let me know if you have heard this at all, that he thought that a tsunami or also called a tidal wave would hit Long Island and destroy everything and that the family needed to leave. Also that uh, the family, or excuse me, that Ron at one point was seen outside his home in front of a statue that is on his lawn, a statue of St. Joseph, St. Joseph, uh, the stepfather of Jesus. The statue was of Joseph holding the baby Jesus, and he was out there praying to it and uh, in his underwear, which is okay. strange, but not illegal. I know that you turn a blind eye to that sort of behavior all the time as a police officer. And then I guess uh, uh, when this happened, this just shows you how apocryphal and sort of legendary it is. He's outside praying to Joseph on his uh, on his lawn and his underwear. And the mom comes out 
and she goes, you know, what are you doing out here, Ron? Get inside. You are embarrassing us in this white Anglo-Saxon Catholic neighborhood. <laughs> get in here. And he's all like, get back in there before I beat you again, as I have beaten you already today. And so any beating will be subsequent, will be a second beating. The, the <laughs> implication was being that she, that she had already been beaten that day. And that if he did not get his peace and quiet to pray in his underwear, that she would be beaten again. That's just a, a weird apocryphal story that just says, like, it establishes domestic violence between the two and that he was out to lunch and that um, he thought he had ESP. And I guess he was sending money to some fake priest in Canada. And that could have been where the money went. Do you see how you absolutely go down a rabbit hole with these things? We're just talking about Ron Sr. And he's got mob connections. He's got psychic powers. I mean... It runs the full gamut. You talk to people who uh, want to be associated in this small town with this case, and they all have their own bizarre theory. After 50 years, this is the number of theories we have about it. You could so literally make up any reason why. And I've never heard that before. I've never heard that he was out. Anybody witnessed him out in his underwear. Like, if that was a true thing to me, okay. I'm going to go in a little. Well, it's not a soapbox, but. Get up there. In <laughs> when you You're five work, foot tall, I would prefer you to be on a soapbox most of the time. John, if I had my yeah. trunk, I could stand on top of the trunk, but Heck I have you'll never get that truck. Whatever. In 30 days, you'll get it. My lawyer and your lawyer says, but okay. <laughs> but anyway, I kind of a couple of episodes ago, I said I made a statement that if you're going to trial, if you've made it that far. You probably did it. Yeah. Because there's some sort of think they can make the case. Yeah. Yes. They uh, state attorneys will prosecutors will not take things to trial that they don't think they're going to win. They won't do it. That's why that's why we get plea deals on some of these. You look and you see how the fuck did that guy get a plea bargain? Because the evidence in the case isn't good and the prosecutors are not going to take it to trial. So they say, well, this is the best we can do to prevent them from going to trial. A smart, well, maybe not so smart, some, some, uh, the word coming to mind is perpetrators because apparently I'm Matlock, but this, these people that commit these crimes, criminals, thank you. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> it's been a day. They will hear that and they will say, no, I'm innocent. I want to fucking go to trial anyway, or no, that's bullshit. You know, I think I can get off scot-free. Sometimes that yeah. works. Because the state is so lacking in evidence, and it's maybe not always their fault. But so if you're going to trial, you you have a large amount of responsibility in whatever happened. I apply the what? same like thought process to when you read these stories. If you see the same story over and over and over and over from multiple people, it's probably true. If you see it one time, it's most likely fucking bullshit. And because if that was true, if it was true that someone saw Ron out praying in his underwear in this affluent neighborhood, uh, threatening to beat his wife, you don't think more people would like that would be a more prevalent story. And um, I just don't it doesn't make any fucking sense to me, but I'm, I'm not saying it didn't happen. But I don't see why that's that's one of those things that these podcasts run 
they run with. They find one little nugget of information and they're like, ooh, that sounds cool. We're going to go with that. Yeah, let's, I, I don't believe need, that. We need happened. to stretch this out to being a full series of podcasts about this one thing that happened. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about how Ron Senior had apocalyptic visions of the future and all this other stuff. The thing that you're talking about with uh, plea bargains, I know it's frustrating as a police officer because you put in all the work and then you know they end up like cutting a deal. You know the prosecutors see it as like, well, you know, I'm not sure that I can get justice, but I can get something. Like if I can get mm -hmm. them to stipulate to this they'll get some jail time they'll get some fines they'll get something they don't get out of this scot-free rather than taking the big gamble that uh the judge is just you know or the jury is going to say you know not guilty and then we get absolutely nothing from the guy we can't retry him can't do anything it's it's all or nothing once jeopardy attaches and so yes. you try to you try to get something something out of that case so it's kind of a compromise it's kind of like playing poker except the prosecutors have to show their cards because of Brady v. Maryland. They have to show all the evidence, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the defense, uh, the defense basically could try to bluff them or, or they can, they can call, you know, and see what, who has the stronger hand in front of a jury to decide. And it's just, it's frustrating. And the thing that's interesting about this case is that, you know, he, the murders occurred, he was arraigned less than 48 hours later. And, um, you know, they just tried him with the with the murder of, I think it was John Matthew. Um, and then uh, later, you know, they were able to uh, build the case. So they, they, they kept him in, in prison on charges from one murder. And when I was first listening to this, I was like, well, you know, this is typical, you know, if they, if they were going to do it just one at a time in case they lost it, you know, they would be able to bring new charges for him against each family member. But I guess the, the case was so strong that they just got it all done at once. They convicted him, like I said, on, on all six counts. Yeah. So the evidence was good. His confession Sorry. was good. No, it's okay. I love it when you do that. Uh, <laughs> the evidence was good. The confession was good. And it was pretty much straightforward. So I guess maybe that's part of the mysticism in the case too, right? Because like, this is so horrible. Um, so it's not about figuring out if Ron did it or who his co-conspirators were, but why, you know, um, even if he was really mad at his, his father and his mother, even if he was really coked out of his mind, you know, why is he going after the little kids? Um, I know. The Dawn That's conspiracy the states that the little kids were supposed to be out of the house and oops, everyone forgot to get the kids out. Everyone just remembered the murder part. They didn't remember that they were supposed to get the kids out. So I don't know. There's, um, there's one guy that I want to talk about real quick before we uh, wrap up on anything else. And I do, Sorry, ADD is kicking in. One thing at a time. All right. There's a guy. <laughs> His name is uh, Ryan Katzenbach. And he is a documentary filmmaker. I found him while I was researching this. And he is very convinced and adamant. He's working on his third documentary on this case. So he's probably a little obsessed with it, if I had to take a guess. He is adamant that there's a second, at least a second person involved in this who fled the scene. The things that he is basing this off of kind of go along the um, same vein as the sensationalized stories and these podcasters that just kind of find one little thing and they think this is it and they run with it. That's, I think, what confirmation bias, I suppose. Yeah. And... This uh, Ryan Katzenbach, he actually 
hired private underwater architects or not architects, <laughs> um, archaeologists to go into like a canal nearby this house. And he found a, they found a gun. They also found uh, a picture of the suitcase of the suitcase. That, oh my gosh. Today is a bad day. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, the pillowcase that he used to hide all of the evidence and put it in a storm drain. And it's a little weird. I don't know what about these two things make him believe there's a second shooter. Uh, he also states that there's no way one person could do all that without a struggle. And we kind of touched on, we touched on that earlier. To I me, think you've proven on this podcast that you know how to, to control and kill multiple people all by yourself. <laughs> Between last week's episode where you explained how you would have the kids kill each other with their love. And this week you talked about how you would systematically uh, go from room to room, pumping round after round into your loved ones. Uh, I think I think we know that you know how to do it. So would you say that I'm a subject matter expert maybe on this? I think that I'm very uh, scared that I'm going to have to like be on a uh, documentary someday or that I will have to not on this podcast, but appear on some other podcast saying how you are either totally normal or totally weird. And I totally knew this was coming, but she was so, so nice. And uh, also she had really good theories on how to, to murder people, but I never saw it coming. <laughs> and uh, the, the reports of her being my ex-wife, you know, uh, legally unclear. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a lot to account for like why did you claim publicly that she was your ex-wife well that was the belief at the time i guess i was doing the best i could well if you give me my trunk back we won't have any problems but we'll talk about it later john um the thing that pissed me off about this guy was that he he brought the gun and all this like new evidence that he found to investigators and he was pissed because they wouldn't look into it. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, because you're not the cop of here. Like, you can't <laughs> just you're not, do that. You're not the cop of here? Like, <laughs> like how you recently wrote me a speeding ticket, even though you do not live in the same jurisdiction as me. Right, exactly. And, and, and it just said Kendra Drama Earth Cop on it. <laughs> yes. I don't have a badge number because I don't need one. I'm the cop of here. No, um, uh, but the, it just it, give me your badge number thing is hilarious. Um, <laughs> that the thing, go ahead. Bit, uh, just kidding. Uh, so that, <laughs> that pisses me off because we keep seeing this like theme, and we're we're harping on it. And I apologize, but people who are not investigators, people who don't have experience in actual criminal investigating, even on a bare bones level, like what I did on patrol, okay. There are so many different things and little factors and procedural things that you have got to do in order to properly investigate something within the letter of the law. People get so pissed off when cops don't just bust down doors and take DNA evidence and take this and take that and do this and do that. And it pisses me off because you do not understand what has to go into this and the, these People that like to tout themselves as investigators just because they fucking read about it all the time and watch law make and order. Me so they make me so incredibly angry. I can't even put it into words because 
This is not a funny but, Nancy Drew novel for you to read. This is a fucking no. criminal investigation and leave it to the fucking professional. Stop thinking that you are going to fucking be some sort of awesome, like genius of criminal investigating. I, I, I can't even talk right. It just makes me very angry. And then they want to blame cops for not doing things correctly or, hey, this guy didn't get convicted because law enforcement didn't do their job. We just sat here and talked about how many steps are in between the initial report and conviction at trial. You could absolutely make a slam dunk case with every little tiny piece of information you could possibly make, present it to the state attorney, and they still won't fucking take it to trial. How is that the law enforcement side of it's not law? I don't. I. Anyway, this guy pissed me off, so I wanted to mention him and put him in the annals of failure to stop because I can. And he pissed me off. So there you go. John. I'm I'm now going to mute Kendra's microphone because she is tearing <laughs> her own set apart. She is smashing things. She's doing that cool thing that you always see on TV where they swipe everything off of a desk in one smooth, fast motion with your forearm. I've always wanted to see someone <laughs> do that in real life. Kendra is not doing that. To your point, though, Kendra, if I may tack on a little bit of hate, I saw a video on Instagram today. I might even play it on Com Center later this week. But a motorcyclist is speeding. He gets pulled over. The cop jumps out of the car, immediately puts handcuffs on him because I guess he's driving recklessly, uh, pats him down, takes some things out of his pockets, and arrests him, which he's arresting him for driving recklessly. He does a search of his person, incident to arrest, all fine. And all the comments are like, well, this cop is going to get fired. He didn't read him his Miranda rights or anything. And it's just like every time someone tries to explain to me what Miranda rights are for, my head explodes. Literally blood comes out of my ears and nose. I'm not even a police officer, but it's I fully understand Miranda. And you don't have to Mirandize someone until they're in custody and you're going to question them about the issue of their criminal detainment. So when this cop is literally just grabbing a guy off a motorcycle, putting him in the back of a police car and he's under arrest, he doesn't have to fucking say anything. In fact, it's in his interest not to psychologically if you arrest someone and you don't say anything that person's gonna like start to start to say talk about what's going on and they might just make a statement against interest that could possibly be admissible because the police officer didn't ask him a question so i get pretty sick of people who have all kinds of thoughts and feelings about how police officers should be conducting their job when they obviously don't know shit about it and they everything they know is from watching Law and Order and they think as soon as handcuffs go on, the Miranda rights get read because it's very dramatic. Guess what, folks? It's just not like that. I am now tearing my own studio apart. I am such I have... a professional that it sounds like <clears throat> I am sitting and speaking passionately, but there are sparks and explosions all <laughs> around me as I am smashing things with my fists. Uh, this is the final episode. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, <laughs> there was one more point I wanted you know, to make, but now I don't remember it. Oh, go ahead. I have a I have a point that you can think about it. This is turning into a like a a rant. That's something we should add to our Patreon. Just have like a rant sesh about yes, something law enforcement related. I'll so, talk about <clears throat> the grocery store a lot, but yes, go ahead. I was going to ask you at the top of the episode when you were talking about people smashing into you at the grocery store if they were in wheelchairs. But that happened just kept talking. And then, so. uh, uh, during during <laughs> COVID, a guy rammed me with a cart too. He full on straight oh on God. rammed me. I'll tell that. I'll tell that story someday. So <clears throat> I can't wait for it. First of all, second of all, these people that uh, the people that we're speaking about, who I think they know their rights and they know everything about law enforcement, criminal investigation, because they watch TikTok and Law and Order and they fucking whatever. 
Um, one thing that irritates me about those types of people, and if you listen to the same, if you listen to the same true crime podcast for a while, you start to pick up on it. They just want everything to be law enforcement's fault because in a case like this, okay, this guy got convicted of six murders. He murdered his family. He annihilated his family. He admitted to it. There's evidence that he did it. There's absolutely no evidence to state that anyone else did it. And he was convicted of six first degree murders. He's, he died in prison. He got his justice. There are still fucking people who want to make this into something that it isn't and find things that the cops overlooked, like this fucking Ryan fellow. They still want something to be law enforcement's fault. They still want the justice system to be so fucking broken. And then when they actually cover cases that do have broken law enforcement justice system, major systematic failures, like the Burger Chef murders that I will cover one day, <clears throat> they are still, they want, they're asking for better investigations and then they fucking get one and they're still pissed. And it's like, you just, you just want a bitch. You just want to have your 15 minutes of fame where you become super cop or super detective and you have a podcast and you're able to just spout whatever bullshit because you don't know what you're talking about. And this case, I saw that throughout this case, and it just, it really, really irritated me. I didn't think I was going to get this heated, but it's just. Um, I'm also angry. The podcast I listened to, they say, oh, well, they took him down to the Suffolk County Homicide Division. It was well known at this time that Suffolk County Homicide and the state's prosecutor's office was so corrupt that a judge wrote a letter to the governor of New York. And on last week's case, it was the same thing, too. In, in the Ketty Cabin murders, they're like, oh, well, they, they called down to um, uh, Sacramento and they got the, the special homicide division from organi the organized crime squad. And that was pretty suspect because everyone knew they were corrupt at the time. Yeah, if you're a small town police chief and you have a, 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 a family murders in a cabin, the first thing you think of is like, well, we're going to try to cover this up. So I'm going to call some other larger <clears throat> organization that I know is corrupt. Uh, to cover up this murder when, by all rights, this jurisdiction is mine and I could I could just be corrupt and cover it up. But they're like, no, we're going to bring in outsiders because we're so corrupt. We're going to bring in an outside organization that's going to corrupt and because I'm corrupt. I'm going to trust them to be corrupt. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. But the number one thing I hate about it, the number one thing I hate about it, Kendra, is that these podcasts just say they were well known to be corrupt at the time. Give me chapter and verse. I want to see case law. I want to see evidence. You cannot just say, oh, these people were known to be corrupt or it was the 70s and things were corrupt. You cannot just. Anyway, <laughs> they just go. Nuts I agree. On podcasts and they just throw it out because it's another piece of sensationalized bullshit saying the police are corrupt. The police <clears throat> fucked this up. The police were best friends with this person. You have no evidence to say that. And you're convicting him in the court of public opinion 40, 50 years after the fact. And you have no fucking piece of evidence. And you go ahead and you say it, despite the fact that you're impugning the character of a person living or dead, you don't care because it makes you more clickbait worthy. Fuck you, other podcasts. True Crime Tuesday is the only podcast that hates all other podcasts. We are honest. We call out other people's shit. And I hate podcasts, and I don't want to. I don't want to listen to any more other fucking podcasts except this podcast. If you listen, I know to you don't want to be podcast, here. If you want to listen to other true crime podcasts, you should stop. Get out. Get out of here. Uh, <laughs> so, if there was a, if there was an accomplice, why didn't uh, Ron Junior flip on him at any point? 
He could have gotten a reduced sentence or something. Some because extra there wasn't every week. The only accomplice was Satan, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, Satan did ask me to do this. Interestingly, you were saying that at that time, you know, uh, the whole demonic possession, uh, Satan told me to do it. Uh, probably the biggest instance of that was uh, the son of Sam killer, where he was saying his dog was telling him to kill people. That was in 1977. That was actually after this. So, um, And the uh, the case that did uh, that inspired The Devil Made Me Do It, it's a Conjuring movie where a little boy was possessed by a demon and the boy's sister's boyfriend. For, I forget names involved in this one. Sorry. Uh, but he allegedly, he during the exorcism, he looked at the boy and he was like, take me, take me, like telling the demon to uh, possess him to leave the boy alone because he was dying. And after this exorcism, this boyfriend uh, went and murdered somebody and the case went to court and it was one of the first, I think it was the first case to use that a demonic presence as a defense. And I, I want to say it worked, but I'm not going to don't hold me to that because I can't remember. Um, let's let's do that one in November because that one sounds interesting. I also want to hear the Burger Chef murders. And if we don't have time for both, just mix them together as though they're the same thing. Burger Chef is I hate. I don't hate. I don't hate it. But I try really hard to pick cases that aren't going to be two, three parters because not everybody wants to cares about that. And if it's a case that you don't like now, there's three whole weeks that you don't want to listen to. You know what I mean? Like but if you don't Burger care Chef, about a suitcase murder, just case in point. Okay, fair enough. You did it, so I can do it. Um, judge said. So I that one will probably be a two or three parter because it is um that was even that was in the 60s. So yeah. law enforcement back then was even like, you know, my grandfather was a cop in the 60s. I've heard some stories. And he so was you, definitely corrupt, I'm sure. Uh no. <laughs> but Anyway, no, I but if, as a podcaster, really if I as a podcaster, if I said it, it must be so, right? Like nobody ever fucking checks a podcaster who says things like that. There's a famous podcaster. I won't blast her name here, but I used to love her. I still love her. I follow her on Instagram. But I started listening to some of the things that she was saying about these cases, and I, being the curious mind that I am, would fact check them or go read them, and it was completely wrong. And I was like. She's got millions of followers. So there's millions of people out here that just believe everything that's coming out of her mouth. And she doesn't even know what she's saying because it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's got a team, you know, like that's that's the problem, though. Like when you have all of this is probably going to get cut out because it has nothing to do with the episode. But when you have a team of people and you have a researcher doing all of your work for you. And you're not fact checking. And your researcher is wrong. Now you're wrong. And that's part of the reason why I put so much effort and love into these cases because I don't want to present anything that is inaccurate. And if you are listening and you hear me say something that's inaccurate, please send me your source and I will correct myself because I don't want to be wrong. I will not say the same thing. I make up a, a lot of silly bullshit. And if I'm going to be held to account for it, I will never be able to get anything else done in my life. So if you come up with a source that discounts something I say, you keep that to yourself. However, okay. Kendra can can be have her feet put to the coals on the truth. I will also say this. Uh, we do our best on this channel to do that. But these podcasters, they're just like modern journalists. They, don't, they have no ethical boundary. They have no compulsion. There's nothing that makes anyone tell you the truth, whether it's the CBS Evening News or this podcaster that Kendra likes. 
they might <laughs> they might know the facts and they might say something else because it sells more Pfizer ads if they say the 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 outlandish thing. And this is certainly one of those cases that does that. There's a there's a whole um, uh, movie media franchise based around it. And if you wanted to touch on the Lutzes real quick before we close on out, yes. Um, Case in point, you know, much has been made of the Lutzes and what happened to them. Yeah, so, so the so uh, the Lutzes, <laughs> they moved in. Oh, I can't remember exactly how how soon after the murders, but they were only there for twenty eight days. Reason being is because they claim that they had um, severe paranormal adverse adverse. Um, <laughs> what am I trying to say? Really bad experience. Slime in the toilet. The house yeah, was yeah. howling at them or whatever. Yeah. And that story in and of itself could be a 30 minute long thing. I'm not going to get too far into it. What I will say is that it has come out that um, the father and the mother of the family were kind of uh, exaggerating the facts to get some sort of attention and a lot of people are asking wonder why because they didn't get money for it they got some uh fame and attention for it i think ed and lorraine warren got involved at some point that's a whole other i don't want do you know anything about ed and lorraine warren no i do not okay well i won't go down that rabbit hole but they got involved at some point and it it just it kind of devolved into basically nothing happened or they had some sort of encounter, but they blew it up out of proportion. And one of the big reasons, like I said, is people wonder why, because they didn't really get anything for it. And it, their, uh, the media attention got so bad that they basically had to like go into hiding for a while. It's very weird. And multiple families have lived there since then and no one has reported anything. So the, the Amityville stuff, when you watch Amityville, the movie is actually based on the Lutzes, not the actual DeFeo family. Yeah. Because, you know, and that got sensationalized as well. Yeah. But it's, it's not quite as sensationalized, you know, I mean, you could do a a movie about that, but you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's more of documentary because a guy for whatever reason, it really, the thing that's interesting in a criminal case is that motive is actually irrelevant. You'll actually see it on TV shows all the time. You have means, motive and opportunity and you have to prove all three in order to win a case no you don't have to prove motive at all motive is not mm-hmm. a legal thing you don't have to explain to a jury why somebody did something if you want to leave that completely out you're not under any obligation and the judge will instruct the jury saying like it may not be clear to you why these things happen but the prosecutor doesn't have to prove it they just have to prove that they did it um there may be cases where uh they're not talking about motive at all. So the motive's interesting to podcast listeners. It's motive. It's the motive is interesting to people like me and Kendra, who uh, are curious about such things. People generally want to know what would move someone to do this, but ultimately it doesn't matter in a legal sense. All you have to prove is is that using direct evidence that uh, he was, and even circumstantial evidence. I also hate that on TV where they're like, "All oh, the evidence is only circumstantial." Well, you can convince on you can convict you can on it. circumstance. Yeah, you know if you're if your uh, plumbing is broken. Right, like your shower's broken, and you hire a plumber, and yeah, you, you say, "Can you fix my shower?" And he says, "Yes, I can." And he goes into the bathroom and closes the door, and you hear a bunch of sounds, and he comes out three hours later, and then uh, the shower turns on and it works fine. That's all circumstantial evidence that he fixed the shower. You didn't see anything, 
uh, you didn't necessarily dust for prints that he touched any pipes, but he, <laughs> it was broken. He went in there. He was by himself for a time. He was hired to do it. And when he was done, uh, the shower worked. So that's all circumstantial evidence that he fixed the shower, right? Like if you were, if it was a crime to fix a shower, he could be convicted on that alone. So when, when <laughs> yeah. you, when you watch, when you watch a TV show and they're like, well, the evidence is all circumstantial, go ahead and stand up, walk across the room and punch the TV because your TV is lying to you. Your TV is trying to make you into a stupider citizen. It's just bad writing. You're watching a show with bad writing. I don't care how sexy the guys are on the show. Turn it off. That's a bad TV show. You're warping your own brain. Um, Thank you for covering this case, for covering the Lutzes. Watch Amityville Horror. Probably still a good movie. Still good designed to give you a nice uh, nice thrill before Halloween. There's a couple. There's uh, there's like the original one, and then there's one with Ryan Reynolds, oh, who I'll did a great watch, job. I'll probably watch that one. Ryan Reynolds is uh, under un, he's uh, still, still underrated, even though everyone loves him to the most that anyone can love anyone. He's still somehow underrated. Uh, just He was done, fantastic in that. Did you do a movie too where he was buried alive? It was probably called Buried Alive with Ryan Reynolds. I don't remember the name. Of the movie. <laughs> I don't know that. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, yeah, look it up, or I'll okay. send it to you, or something. Um, but uh, I have to go to work, so I can't. Yes, please go to work. I can't, I can't podcast anymore, and Kendra has to be uh, medically sedated. I also need medical sedation, but I don't get to do that. I just get to go to work because uh, my health insurance isn't great. So my medical plan is to not get sick. So, oh, well, that's what it means to be a government employee. I get to save everyone else's life and I get to feel miserable while I do it. I have to complain. That's for Thursday is when I issue my complaints. <laughs> speaking of or Thursday. Peter. Yes. Speaking of Thursday, uh, Com Center, Drew Breezy, we're going to finish out the suitcase case come hell or high water. If it's not the last suitcase episode ever, I will put in my papers because... Uh, it's a compelling case, but it needs to end. Uh, Friday, the big show with Eric and Drew. Uh, that's all going to be going on down in Florida. Like I said, they're down there this week uh, for the bare knuckle boxing fight. Uh, Valor uh, boxing with Ken Shinerock down there. It's going to be interesting. If you're not there, make sure you catch that show on Friday. On Sunday, you can catch Eric and Conservative Ant. Uh, they do a night shift TSI where they break down all the conspiracies and all kinds of weird shit that goes on with the government that they don't want you to know about. It's kind of the opposite end of uh, true crime where it's unsolved shit, but it's a little bit different. Interesting show. Then on Monday, you got Uncuffed with Jader White, also with Eric, with two former cops to break down all the news. Uh, Tuesday, you'll catch us here next week. Wednesday, of course, the one show I didn't mention is uh, Last Call. That's with Eric Tanzi and Debla. They break down all the news so that you don't sound like an asshole. Folks, it's Halloween. We're going to be back next week. We're going to talk about another case uh, that's uh, very spooky. We appreciate you taking time out of your day to be with us at Failure to Stop. We love you guys. We do it all for you. Uh, thanks for being uh, so welcoming uh, to Kendra. I think she's the best. We're doing a great job. Uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks for being in the chats. Uh, we love you all. Uh, I'm high on Robitussin. <laughs> <laughs> why I'm feeling so sentimental. Uh, Michael. <laughs> Hendrix, if you're in the chat, that's why I'm so sentimental. And sorry, it's because I'm I'm almost as high as uh as Ron Jr. here. So uh Kendra, uh guns up, giddy up, good night, America, and see you guys next week. Stay safe and whatever you do, don't get yourself true crimed. Nice. See you nice. next week. Bye. <laughs>